Good evening, church. As always, thank you not only for, for being here, but also for engaging in this study together. I'm thankful for our shepherds uh, in allowing me to, to bring this, this study. I've, I've been wanting to do this for a number of years and have just been afraid to tackle it, I think. Uh, but I've, I've only wanted to tackle it if we could tackle it the way that we're doing in this series, in that I don't want to, I don't want to deal with things in isolation. I don't want to deal with certain sins in isolation. I don't want to deal with certain ideas in isolation. I would so much rather deal with them as a part of a whole. And, and we've really been taking it very, very slowly. And I know that you've noticed that. Uh, I've talked with some of you about that, about how we've been taking this very slowly. And we've sort of been laying a foundation and then hopefully building on that foundation as we go to really hopefully have a, a better idea of what does Scripture say about love, marriage, sexuality, what does Scripture say about these things, and, and also contrasting that with our culture. And, and I, again, I don't mean culture in just an accusative sense of saying those people out there, the people in the world. What I mean is that which really has shaped all of us. And I hope that, I hope that if nothing else, that's what we achieve in this series, is that we really reflect and renew, where we take a look inside of us and look at ourselves, you, not, not the person sitting by you, not, not your relatives, not your friends, not your coworkers, but you and me, where we look inside of our own heart and mind and life and say, am I thinking about marriage, singleness, sex, romance, love? Am I thinking about those things through a biblical lens? Because what we're, what we're proposing, what Scripture is propo- proposing, is really a radical and unique way of thinking about sexuality. It's a unique way. It was radical in the, in the ancient world. It was radical in the first century, and it's radical today. And, and I really don't blame anyone who doesn't want to adopt a Christian sexual ethic. I don't blame anybody that doesn't want to adopt a Christian sexual ethic. If somebody doesn't want Jesus as their king, then I really don't expect someone to adopt a Christian sexual ethic. But if we believe Jesus is king and we want to surrender and submit our lives to him to be his apprentices, his followers, his disciples, then we have to take seriously what scripture says about marriage and sex, what, what Scripture says about these subjects, and submit ourselves to King Jesus and say, He knows better than I know uh, how, to, how to order my life. Let me start this evening with some cultural forces that may be at work around us. See if these things, again, some of these we've talked about already, but see if these things resonate. Things like this. Number one, radical individualism. That's something we've talked about a lot. Uh, things like my personal interests, pursuits, and happiness are my priority. That's one of the cultural forces that, are, that is at work um, in, in shaping the way we think about these things. Number two, sexual liberation. I should be free to engage sexually with any consenting partner or partners that I choose. Um, that, that obviously for the last 50 years or so, 60 years, however long it's been, um, really has been a cultural force at work on the way that we think. Number three, hyper-romanticism. Uh, the idea of a soulmate, that, that somewhere out there, there's someone that I'm destined to be with and that they're destined to be with me. Uh, and if I find them and I can commit myself to them and they commit themselves to me, then that will bring ultimate 
happiness and fulfillment. We say we'll live happily ever after, right? And so that, that idea of hyper-romanticism has shaped our thinking. Number four, the idealization of marriage. It's interesting, and some of these, some of these cultural forces that are at work are at work in a cooperative way and in a, some in a conflicting way. So some of these forces are kind of pushing against each other and some of them are pulling in the same direction. So we, we live in a culture that tends to be radically individualistic, that says me and my pursuits and my interests, but we also live in a culture that continues to idealize marriage and continues to say, oh yes, that's the ultimate way to experience and express love between two soulmates. And so we live in a culture that is, on the one hand, moving more and more towards individuality and individualism, but then on the other hand, still continues to have this idealistic vision about marriage. And then number five, emotionally justified divorce. Ideas like, if I no longer find marriage fulfilling, then it is inauthentic or unfair to everyone to continue to be married. So not because the person was unfaithful, not because they did something wrong, but simply because I don't feel in love with them anymore. And in fact, I thought it would be helpful. I'm not going to share who said this, um, but I, I've seen so many, especially since we started this class, I've just seen so many statements where people, especially celebrities, have, um, have made statements about why they're leaving their spouse. Here was one celebrity She said this after 13 years of marriage. She said, when I was 26 years old and he was 29 years old, we met, we wanted a family, we wanted things together. As time goes by, we realized that we just wanted different things. And now we have a choice to make. That doesn't mean you don't love the person. It just means that in order for you to be authentic and truly live the life that you want to live, you have you have to have somebody who can meet you in the middle, right? It's a dance. It's a balance. When you love someone, you don't put them in a jail and say, you have to live this life. You set them free to be who they are. And if you want to fly the same direction, then that's amazing. And I say that not not to pick on this person in particular. Again, I'm not even going to say who that is. but, But to say that this is kind of anecdotally what we see often, don't we? This idea that says it, it's I have to I have to be true to myself and I have to let them be true to themselves and hey if we're going in the same direction for a while that's great I want this thing they want that thing and we just happen to be going in the same direction and if we happen to be going in the same direction as two individual people great that's wonderful we'll go in the same direction for a while but if I start wanting other things and they start wanting other things then go your own way. Because after all, people tend to think that marriage is just about making you happy. And if it doesn't make you happy anymore, if it's not fulfilling you, if it's not bringing you personal satisfaction and happiness, then why stay together? There's no purpose of it other than making you happy. Again, we talked a lot about last week about singleness, about how even singleness, if you choose to be single, it's not just being single to be single or to be single because that brings you personal happiness. As Christians, hopefully, we're doing whatever we do, whatever we do, for a greater purpose than simply just to make us happy. But I'm afraid that these cultural forces that are at work all around us, again, it's in the air that we breathe. 
It's in the water that we drink. It has even shaped our thinking on these things. I I like this quote from uh, Jonathan Grant's book, Divine Sex. Here's what he said. Unfortunately, many modern Christians have been deeply formed within the surrounding culture so that they have also come to see their relationships and marriages purely in purely individualistic terms. Their marriages are perceived as solely for their own benefit rather than existing also for the sake of the church and its witness in the world. It is no wonder then that Christian relationships are often not clearly distinguishable from those in the culture at large. Again, what I'm saying here is that that when we talk about Christian sexuality, this is more than just do and do not. This is more than just rules. It's about saying that God presents us with a vision for life, for the body, for sex, for relationships, for marriage that is bigger than you. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than your own personal happiness. But again, we we tend to be people and live in a culture that tends to think that everything is about my personal happiness. And if it makes me happy, then I'll do that thing. And if it doesn't make me happy, then why should I do that thing? And I'm just going to abandon that thing if it doesn't make me happy anymore. But Jesus presents us with the opportunity to be part of a story that is so much bigger than that. A story that sometimes requires us to do things that don't make us happy, that are hard, that are difficult, that are sacrificial, that that require us to give ourselves, empty ourselves, follow his example of taking up our cross and sacrificing self towards something, in pursuit of something that is so much bigger than our own personal happiness. So again, again, what we're, we're saying is that Jesus wants us to adopt this unique and different view of marriage. It begins, it begins in the creation account, doesn't it? Look at Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. This, this is the passage that Jesus comes back to. This is the passage that Paul comes back to. This is the passage that Peter comes back to. This is the, the passage, I'm sure, that the, the church in Jerusalem, when they were talking about, okay, how do, we, how do we start to include these Gentiles into our religious family? I mean, don't you know what those Gentiles do sexually? Don't you know what they do? We can't allow that. And so when the, when the Jerusalem church and the apostles laid out, okay, this is, this is going to be the standard by which we adopt you into our family. You can't worship idols. You can't eat food that's been sacrificed to idols. You can't eat the blood that's in this meat. And you can't engage in sexual immorality. And this passage, right at the beginning of the creation account, this is the passage, this is the story, this is the narrative that shapes our imagination. It shapes God's people's imagination for how we think about what it means to be human, what it means to be married, what it means to have sex, what it means to live out God's plan for us. So Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now this phrase in Hebrew is a, is a fascinating phrase. Azer Konegdo. Azer is a helper, 
And, and most of the time that the, that the Old Testament uses the word azer, it's actually talking about God. It's God coming to be a rescuer, God coming to be a helper. So when God says about Adam, it's not good for the man to be alone, I will make him a helper. He's not talking about like a, a sidekick or like an assistant or somebody who is, is less than him. He's talking, he's talking about somebody who will do for him what he can't do for himself. And most of the time, when, again, when Azer is used, it's, it's used about God, that God comes to Israel's rescue, to Israel's aid, to help and lift up Israel. And God says about the man that he needs an Azer. He needs a helper. He needs somebody to lift him up, to do for him what he can't do for himself. And then this other word, konegdo, is fit for him or corresponding to him. One way to think about it is like a mirror image. It's like, it's like something that's, that's different, but in the same kind of way. You know what I mean? It's, not, it, it's different, but not completely different. It's different in a corresponding way. The way a mirror image is different. The way your two hands, your right hand and your left hand, they're not identical, right? In some ways, they're the opposite, but they're the opposite in a corresponding way. And so God says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper who is his corresponding opposite, who will come together with him in a corresponding sort of way, in a complementary kind of way. Verse 19, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the, every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. And we can, we can see why, right? We can see why, because none of the animals corresponded to him. None of them were corresponding to him. None of them were his mirror image. And so all of the animals go past Adam and none of them can be his helper because none of them are like him. So does the biblical story show us that men and women are different? Sure, yeah, of course men and women are different. But does it also show us that they're similar? Yes, of course it does. It shows us that they are corresponding to one another. And none of the animals could do that. None of the animals could correspond to Adam to be his helper, to be his azer. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. Let me just kind of stop there for just a second. One of his ribs is an interesting, is an interesting translation, and I, you know, I'm obviously not a, not a scholar, but it is interesting that we would translate this as um, as rib, because the rest of the time that the word, that that word is used, it's used for the side of something, the side of something, like the side of a building or the side of a house. And so some scholars have said this is actually talking about the fact that, that God took humanity, humanity was one, Adam, and then split humanity and took one of his sides and made the woman. So you could say that humanity is sort of split in half, and there's one half that is male and one half that is female. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then 
Then the man said, this, is at la- this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So again, I think that's a beautiful picture, isn't it? That, that God said that there's, there's nothing else in creation that can be what man needs. What man needs is an azer, is, is a help, is, is somebody to do for him what he can't do for himself. He needs someone with him. He doesn't need to be alone. And so I'm going to make him a helper that is corresponding to him, that his, his opposite in some ways, but who is opposite like him, who is the mirror image of him. And so he splits Adam in half, and from one half he creates female, and the other half he creates male. So we have these two sides of humanity, right? We have these two halves of humanity. We have a male half of humanity, and we have a female half of humanity, and they correspond to one another. And then Adam says these words, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. If you like use your Bible app and you do a search for bone and flesh, you'll find that most of the time that those words are used together, bone and flesh, it's, we kind of use the phrase flesh and, flesh and blood. We say, you're my, you're my flesh and blood. And when we say to somebody, you're my own flesh and blood, what do we mean? family, right? You're my family. You're, you're my own flesh and blood. You're, we're related to one another. And, and it is as if uh, Adam is saying to Eve, you are my bone and flesh. That's how the, the Bible tends to put it. You're my bone and flesh. You're my family. He's making covenant with her. You are my bone and flesh. You are from my very bones and from my very flesh, and we are family with one another. He's making covenant to be family with her, to be committed to her. And in fact, the next verse is the one that that sort of shapes and lays out and becomes the very definition of marriage and, and so much of what it means to be human, verse 24, which is kind of like an an interjection by the narrator, by Moses. Moses puts this in. The, the narrator puts this into the story. This doesn't seem to be what, what Adam is saying because Adam doesn't have any parents. Eve doesn't have any parents. And so this is being said to say this story, this story about Adam and Eve is not just to inform you, it's to instruct you. Just kind of sit with that for a second. It's not just to inform you, it's to instruct you. This is supposed to shape you. This is supposed to become normative. This is what it means to be married. This is what it means to enter into this kind of a covenant relationship. And so it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint actually says the two, The two, and that's what Jesus quotes from, the two shall become one flesh. So this becomes the archetype. This becomes the paradigm. This becomes the example. This becomes the instruction. This becomes normative. This is what marriage is. This is what marriage is supposed to be. Now, is marriage always what it's supposed to be? I should say, is marriage ever what it's supposed to be? As we, as we continue on the biblical story, of course, man and woman are going to sin and they're going to fall and then everything is broken. 
Family is broken, relationships are broken, everything is broken. So it's really hard to, it's funny when people talk about biblical families. It's like, I don't know which family you're talking about. You know, what does that mean, biblical families? But this one verse, there is so much packed into there. And when Jesus talks about what is marriage supposed to be, when Paul talks about what is marriage supposed to be, when Peter talks about what is marriage supposed to be, they all come back to this one this one sentence right here, because everything that you need to know just about, that you need to know about marriage is packed into this one verse, at least until we get a little bit more revelation on that as we go. But let's kind of walk through that for just a second. So, so the passage says that the man and his wife, the man and his wife, you can go to the next slide there. So in Hebrew, it's ish is man, ish and woman or wife is isha. And you can hear how those two words are corresponding to one another, right? Ish and isha. That marriage is between a man, ish, and isha, woman. And so this is what marriage is. This is what marriage is supposed to be. It's these corresponding halves of humanity that come together in a corresponding way to make a covenant with one another. Which, of course, as we take this one passage later on in Leviticus, like in Leviticus chapter 20, if you want to go and read all the prohibitions in Leviticus chapter 20, you'll see how this all gets worked out. But this one passage is setting down the precedent in a positive way and also, by by contrast, whatever is not according to the biblical picture. And so the biblical picture is of an ish, a man, and an isha, a woman, coming together in marriage, which, of course, sets a precedent against same-sex relationships, which Leviticus 20 would say a man lying with a man as with a woman, okay? And then we go on. He says things like, leave his father and his mother. Again, Leviticus chapter 20, when, when they're laying out the prohibitions against sexual immorality, so much of that has to do with incest. Why? Because that's not what marriage is supposed to be. It's not supposed to be with your family of origin. It's supposed to be with a new person that you're bringing into your family. And so this man leaves his father and his mother. He leaves his his house and he makes a new covenant bond, a new kinship covenant with someone else. And that precedent sets a precedent against ancestral relationships. Then he says that the man is to hold fast to his wife. The marriage relationship is supposed to be like being glued together, clinging to, holding fast to, which again, of course, it sets a precedent against things like divorce and abandonment. You're not supposed to leave your wife, abandon your wife, divorce your wife, Go find a different wife. Why? Because there is a precedent of clinging to, being glued to, holding on to. You made a covenant with her. You covenanted yourself. You said, you're my bone and flesh. You said, we're family. And that covenant comes with responsibility, and you have to hold fast to that relationship. Again, in the Hebrew, it just sort of says they, but in the Septuagint, it translates that as the two which makes sense because we're talking about the ish, the man, and the isha, the woman, that these two are coming together. So this relationship of marriage is supposed to be between two people, which of course sets a precedent against 
polygamy. Now, of course, we read through the patriarchs and we see that they disregarded that over and over and over and over again, but it never worked out well, did it? It never worked out well. It was always disastrous. And then, finally, they become one flesh. And this, this right here becomes such a, an important concept. The marriage relationship is supposed to be one of mutual care, affection, tenderness, sexual intimacy. Why? Because you become one body within this covenant relationship. You become like, like one in the same body and you care for and you nurture one another like your own body. So it, again, sets a precedent against things like abuse and neglect. This is what Paul will continue to spell out. But again, this one passage, this one passage has all of these truths sort of packed into it. And you can see all of those, the negative side, what scripture calls sexual immorality spelled out in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But, but again, this becomes the foundation, what's supposed to shape our imagination. This is what marriage was always intended to be. This is God's creational intent. When you get into the, the first century world, the, the world in which Jesus, Jesus ministered and taught, the world in which Paul taught, depending on the context, you had Greek context and Roman context and Jewish context, but in so many of those places, in so many of those cities and contexts, marriage could be, could be a very cold, manipulative, transactional type of a thing. A, 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 an arrangement, a marriage made primarily by families and involving money and, and usually about having children and really just kind of an arrangement that wasn't maybe, maybe wasn't something that either one of them really wanted personally. So when we step into and think about marriage, we, again, we tend to think about it very differently. But I want us to listen to the words of Paul and think both how radical they were in his day and how radical they are, they continue to be in our day. Look at Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22. Here's what Paul says. As he's, here's the context. Let me just set up the context a little bit. In context, Paul is writing to this church at Ephesus. He's talking primarily about Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians coming together. And again, it's so hard. It's so hard for different ethnic groups to come together because obviously you've got language barriers, but you've also got cultural barriers and you've got different ways of doing things. And so you had the Jewish way of doing things and the, and the, the Gentile way of doing things. And so coming together in one family was very difficult. And so Paul is laying out what the new humanity looks like. When the Spirit of God dwells in you, here's what it looks like. And then he, he lays out in these sort of household codes, what does it look like when Spirit-filled people engage in marriage? What does marriage look like between a Spirit-filled wife and a Spirit-filled husband? Here's what he says, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. See, this is why I was scared to get into this. this uh, <laughs> not really. Not really. Obviously, obviously, 
this passage has been taken out of context and has been used in an abusive way. By the way, this text isn't addressed to husbands, is it? It's not addressed to husbands. It doesn't say, husbands, make your wives do... That's not what it says. Please don't do that. We'll get to the husbands in just a second. Put your seatbelt on, right? Because we'll, we'll get to that. This isn't two husbands. This is two wives. And I want us to consider how. Yes, yes, this, this idea has been abused, and it has been, it's been used in, in a way that it shouldn't be used, and it's been taken out of context. But is it possible, both in the ancient world and in the modern world, for women, again, we'll talk about men in a second, but is it possible for wives to approach marriage with selfish motives and to try to use marriage to get something out of it that's selfish and try to manipulate and use their husband in a way to to try to gain their own ends. How can I get my husband to do what I want him to do? How can I manipulate him to get what I want out of this? Paul turns that upside down and says, Jesus and the church are your model for marriage. And your relationship with Jesus, the church's relationship with Jesus is not transactional, is it? At least it shouldn't be. Our relationship with Jesus isn't transactional. We submit to Jesus not in an effort to try to manipulate him. Okay, if I do this, maybe Jesus will give me that. If I do this thing, how do I get Jesus to give me what I want? That shouldn't be the way the church interacts with Jesus, nor should it be the way that a wife interacts with her husband. We submit to Jesus because of who he is and what he's done and our covenant relationship with him. And so we surrender ourselves to him. We love him. We devote ourselves to him because of who he is and because of what he's done out of gratitude, out of devotion, not in an effort to manipulate him or to have some sort of a transaction so that we can get what we want out of it. I think that's exactly what Paul is saying to wives. Wives, don't approach your marriage in a transactional way. Stop trying to manipulate him to get what you want out of the marriage and love him. Love him the way the church loves and submits to and surrenders to and is devoted to Jesus. Now, verse 25, husbands. He spends way more time, by the way, on husbands than he does wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Again, the church and the church's relationship with Jesus becomes what we are supposed to be living out and modeling in our marriages. This becomes what we're trying to do. What we're trying to do is communicate to one another, communicate to the church, and communicate to the world. This is what the relationship between Jesus and the church looks like by living that out in our marriage. Paul says it's things like self-giving love, self-giving love for the sake of your wife, self-giving love for her sake, self-giving love for her sanctity, for her splendor, for her holiness. What would it look like if every Christian husband's primary motivation in marriage 
was Christ-like, self-giving love for the sake of his wife's spiritual needs. Let me say that again. What if every Christian husband's primary motivation in marriage was Christ-like, self-giving love for the sake of his wife's spiritual needs? To love her the way Jesus loves the church. This is what it's supposed to look like. Now again, I know, I mean, for nobody is our marriage there yet, but this is what we're striving to work. Wives as their own bodies. This is the one flesh idea. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. He says, this this is what it looks like to be spirit-filled husbands. This is what it looks like to be spirit-filled wives, for you to love them like you're loving your own body. So neglecting your wife is ridiculous. Just as much as neglecting your own body, you wouldn't neglect to give yourself food. You wouldn't neglect to, to bathe yourself. You wouldn't neglect to take care of yourself. So why would you neglect your wife? You're supposed to love her like your own flesh, like your own body, like Jesus does the church. This is what it's supposed to look like in a Christian marriage. Verse 31, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Again, quoting from Genesis 2. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. He says, this passage in Genesis 2, it's a profound mystery because it's not just about marriage. It's about Christ and the church. He's saying not that Christ and the church points to our marriage, but that our marriage is supposed to point to Christ and the church. That gives a whole new purpose and meaning for marriage. Your marriage is not just about making you happy because guess what? Some days it won't. Some days it won't. Some days it won't feel romantic. Some days it won't fulfill your wants and desires. Some days it won't be what you want it to be. But this is the bigger purpose to which we're called. Yes, sometimes it can be incredibly pleasurable and wonderful, but this is the bigger picture. The bigger picture is that our marriages are supposed to point to the relationship of Jesus and the church and that self-giving love, that respect, that devotion, without selfish ambition, without manipulation, without, without deceit or conceit, not trying to try to manipulate one another to get what we want or, or using this as a means in and of itself, but as an avenue through which we can bring glory to God by living out for the church to see and for the community to see and for your spouse to see. This is the way Jesus loves the church. This is the way the church submits to Jesus. And for us to strive as imperfectly as we do, we're all imperfect, but to strive for this to be our goal. Now, that's all very, very theological, but Paul is just as practical as he is theological. Look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians 7, we'll end with this passage. Verse 1, he's talking in context. Again, we read some of this last week where he is encouraging people, hey, if you can, I really recommend singleness. It's great. You know, so, so he recommends singleness, but he says, concerning the matter about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. 
But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now notice, again, the purpose, the purpose that he lays out here for if you're going to get married, why? To keep you from sin. It's to serve a bigger purpose than just, than just your own wants and desires. Again, we have wants and desires. Our, our wants and desires aren't necessarily bad, but they can't be an end in and of themselves. This has to serve a spiritual purpose, a bigger purpose, the glory of God. Verse 3, the husband should give his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Now notice, this shows agency on both people's parts, right? He should give to her, she should give to him. This is mutual love for one another. This is their decision to give that love to one another. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. I I can't imagine how radical that was in the first century. For Paul to say a husband doesn't have authority over his own body, his wife does. Your wife, your, 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 your body, husbands, it belongs to your wife. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement. I mean, that's, that's profound in and of itself, isn't it? By agreement. Like, talk about it. Talk about your sex. Talk about your love for one another. Talk about how you're going to be together with one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Again, to keep you from sexual sin. To keep you from sexual sin. Talk about it, but also love one another and give yourselves to one another for one another's benefit, for one another's good, for one another's good. Do we see how marriage is one example of how we live out Christianity. It's one way we can live out Christianity. There's a lot of ways we live out our Christianity, but marriage should be one of those ways where we can live out our Christianity. This self-giving love, considering others more significant than ourselves, looking out for their interest and not our own. Let me give you four intentions for Christian marriage before we close. Four intentions for Christian marriage. Number one, model the self-giving love of Christ and the church. It's what we're trying to do, isn't it? It's what we should be trying to do. Model the self-giving love of Christ in the church. Number two, reflect God's creational intent for lifelong, monogamous, male-female, one-flesh covenant relationships. Genesis 2. Reflect God's creational intent. Number three, help to prevent sin by mutually satisfying one another's sexual impulses. Loving one another, helping one another to avoid sin. Number four, create a godly home where children can be brought up into the world and taught to follow Jesus. We didn't spend a lot of time on that point, but but there's certainly a good case can be made for that. Create a godly home where children can be brought up into the world and and taught to follow Jesus. We could sum it all up by saying marriage is one way. We talked last week, singleness is another way. But marriage is one way for Christians to pursue the glory of God and the good of the church. Marriage is one way for Christians to pursue the glory of God and the good of the church. That that redefines, Scripture redefines marriage for us to help us if and when you're pursuing marriage, but also while you are married, to help remind us, why am I doing this? And in what way should I be doing this? 
Is this just to make me happy? Is it just to make them happy? Or am I serving a bigger purpose in my marriage? Let's pray. Father God, Lord, you have called us into a bigger story. And Father, we, we've, we've fallen so short of your glory. We've, we've sinned. We've missed the mark. And we pray for your forgiveness. And we, we rest assured of your grace and your mercy. Father, we're so thankful for that. And Father, we pray that if and when we engage in marriage, that we will do so as followers of Jesus and that our minds and hearts and imaginations will be shaped by Scripture and by the, the rule and the reign of King Jesus and that we will walk by the Spirit and that we will seek your glory and the good of others. Father, we thank you for marriage. We thank you for all of your blessings. And we pray that you help us to live out your plan to the best of our ability through the power of your Spirit. Uh, to your glory. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.